in general last Sunday evening, and which is to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the third chapter. Let me read to you the first seven verses. The Gospel according to John, the third chapter. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. Now I come back to this subject because it is beyond any question the most important subject that we can ever consider together. There is nothing which ever encounters men during his time in this world which is in any way as important as the matter which is dealt with in these words which I have just read to you. Here is something that applies not only to our life in this world, but also to our life in the next world. Here is something that is of importance not only in time, but for eternity. Now that's not to detract from the importance and the significance of many other subjects. But it is to say that this is the matter which is of supremest importance. It's quite right to take an interest in politics and political affairs. The country must be well-ordered, it must be governed, it must be run in the best way possible. Certainly it is our business to be interested in that, in education and culture and all these things. But, I say, there is nothing. As our Lord himself put in that memorable phrase, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There is nothing which is in any way comparable in importance to this most essential matter. What determines our eternal destiny and indeed our happiness also in this world, according to this New Testament gospel, is just this. What is our relationship to this person? this Lord Jesus Christ. Are we in the kingdom of God, or are we not? For it's one or the other. You can't be partly in and partly out. We are either in God's kingdom, or else we are not in God's kingdom. And that, I say, is the matter which is of final importance to us every one. Now, Last Sunday evening we spent our time looking at this matter from a negative standpoint. We were looking at those people 
described at the end of the second chapter of this gospel, uh, who in many ways shared something in common with this man Nicodemus, at whom we are going to look tonight. These were people, you remember, of whom we are told that they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ when they saw them in his name, when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. And there we were dealing with the danger of falsely assuming that we are Christians and citizens of the kingdom of God. It's a very real, it's a very terrible danger. The danger of thinking and of fondly imagining that we really are in the right relationship to him, and yet the whole time in an utterly wrong relationship, a relationship which he himself does not recognize at all. We have to start with the negative, because as I say, a preacher who doesn't warn people against the greatest danger confronting their souls is not only a false friend, he is in many senses a criminal. No one likes dealing with the negative. I don't like dealing with the negative. But I can imagine nothing more terrible than for a man to wake up in eternity and discover that whereas he thought he was a Christian, that he really has never been one. And I should have thought that the most friendly thing one man can do to another is to cause him to ask questions and to make certain where he stands. Because, my friends, this gospel enables us to be certain. We can know, and we shouldn't be satisfied until we do know. Very well, there was the negative. Now we come this evening uh, to the positive. And this is put before us in this extraordinary manner, which is described here in this third chapter of John's gospel, this interview that took place between Nicodemus and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the great incidents of the whole of Scripture. One of the most interesting. One of the most dramatic. And full of truth and of instruction for us. Now, the truth is found here positively, I say, in terms of what our Lord himself said to Nicodemus. And particularly in the way in which he said it. The manner of his treatment of this man Nicodemus. The big point is, as you remember, that our Lord obviously interrupted Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes and makes his statement saying, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do those miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And clearly he was going on to say something. Our Lord interrupts him, cuts across him in a brusque manner with this tremendous statement, verily, verily, Amen, amen, calling attention to it, emphasizing it. I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, here is the whole essence of this subject. Here is Nicodemus, you see, taking the trouble to go and see our Lord. I say the great thing that matters is our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, our view of him, our total reaction to him, our entire relationship to him. Well, now, here's a man who takes the trouble to go at night and seeks an interview with him. And yet, you see, what our Lord makes so perfectly plain and clear is that the man's whole approach is wrong. The entire approach is wrong. 
Let me put it to you like this, if you like. Here is a man who has been attracted by the Lord, was interested in him, and yet he very clearly has never seen and has never understood why it was ever necessary for this person to come, who he is, what he has come to do. Now that is the cause of so much stumbling and so much failure. There are many people who've got a view of Christianity and they think that they are Christians, but it's a view of Christianity which doesn't account for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the first thing, surely, which we must always be clear about when we come to consider Christianity. What is Christianity? Well, patently, it has got to do with this person whom we assert on the basis of the New Testament teaching, is the Son of God. We say that the only begotten Son of God, that second person in the Blessed Holy Trinity, at a given point in time, entered into this world, was born of the Virgin Mary, and lived in this world for some 33 years, and did various things, was crucified on a cross, and died and buried, and rose again, manifested himself to the people, and then ascended unto heaven and sent down the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. Now then, our view of Christianity must of necessity account for the whole of that. And if our view of Christianity doesn't account for that, well, it obviously isn't Christianity. So that you see, this notion that some people have that Christianity just is a little message which tells us to live a good life and not to do harm, that doesn't account for all this. You can have all that. You can have your morality entirely apart from this tremendous fact. Now, the essence of Christianity is this. Something or other is true about mankind which necessitated the coming of the Son of God into this world. That's the thing that Nicodemus had never grasped. And that's the thing that our Lord proceeds to make perfectly plain and clear to him. He did not realize, obviously, the true nature of this realm to which Jesus Christ belonged. That is, I say, the essence of his trouble. He realized by watching him and watching his miracles, he realized that there was something different about him. He, as a Pharisee, knew the other Pharisees, he knew the great doctors of the law, but here he's suddenly confronted by this peasant who's come up from Galilee. Who's not a Pharisee at all, and has never had any training as a Pharisee. He sees what he does, and he's aware of the fact that he's up against a, a very unique type of personality. He's facing a man such as he's never seen before. He's perfectly clear about all that. But what he did not realize was that our Lord was altogether different. It isn't enough to realize that he is different in certain respects. The thing we have to grasp is that he is absolutely apart, that he is altogether different, and that he is in a class and a category entirely on his own. Nicodemus, I say, seems to have thought that, if you like, it was a comparatively easy thing for him to become a Christian that the transition from where he was to where Christ was was not a very big one, nor a very difficult one. 
but that by just a brief conversation and putting a question or two, he could easily move from his state into that other state. Now, that's the very thing I say that our Lord proceeds to deal with. Nicodemus, for me to put it in one phrase, had not realized that to become a Christian involves the profoundest change that is conceivable. That the difference between not being a Christian and being a Christian involves this transition, this change, this kind of climactic event than which I say nothing possibly can be greater. Now, that's the very thing that our Lord proceeded to teach Nicodemus, the thing about which he at once goes on to enlighten him. And you see, as I've reminded you already, he stops him at once. He knows exactly the line of argument. He can see exactly what's coming. And he sees that Nicodemus' whole basis, his foundation, his presuppositions, are so absolutely wrong that as long as he's there, he can never come to the right position. So he bursts in upon him and says, Nicodemus, stop a moment. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now then, what is this? Why does our Lord say this? What does this teach us about the Christian message? Why does it involve this great, profound, this climactic change? Well, let me try to answer that question. Let me put it to you in three propositions. Here's the first. The kingdom of God is absolutely different from everything else from everything we have ever known, from everything we have ever been. That is the first proposition. Now you read through these four Gospels, and you'll find that the Lord Jesus Christ in his teaching and his preaching was always talking about this kingdom of God. That's his theme. He has come, he says, to call people to enter into the kingdom of God. He starts off by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he speaks his Sermon on the Mount about what? About the kingdom of God. He speaks his great parables, parable of the sower and others. What's it about? Well, this is how he starts. The kingdom of God is like unto a man that went out to sow the seed. The kingdom of God is like a woman who took a, put, a, put leaven in a measure of meal. The kingdom of God is like a dragnet. The kingdom of God is like a merchantman seeking goodly pearls. And so on and so forth. It's all about the kingdom of God. That's his message. Because, as I say, his teaching is that it is only those who are in this kingdom of God who are right for time and for eternity. He has come about the kingdom of God. Very well. What is the truth about this great kingdom of God? The very title that he uses at once makes certain suggestions. The first thing that is suggested by the notion of a kingdom is that it is a sphere or a realm which is separated and marked off and distinguished and differentiated from other spheres and from other realms. You've got the kingdom, if you like, of Great Britain. 
and it is a particular realm and a particular sphere. It isn't identical with the kingdom of Holland or the kingdom of Norway or the kingdom of Sweden. The very notion of kingdom at once suggests a delimitation, a marking off, a distinction, a separation. Not only that, it uh, carries other certain ideas, doesn't it, quite inevitably. A kingdom is something which is clearly defined. It has a king. It has a head of necessity. It has rules. It has laws. And it has a certain type and a certain kind of citizen. Now, those, I say, are notions which the very term, the very word kingdom at once suggests to us. And, of course, it is as true about this kingdom of God as it is about any earthly kingdom. Now then, there is the point at which we start, you see. And that is why our Lord brings out this to Nicodemus, that to be a Christian means that you change from one realm right over into another. It's going out of one kingdom right into another kingdom. That's the great message of the New Testament. It's not only in the Gospels, it's in the preaching of all the apostles. This is the thing that they were always enunciating. Let me go on to a second point. This kingdom is God's kingdom in distinction to the kingdom of this world. Now there again is a great New Testament theme. The New Testament, in a sense, is a great statement on these two kingdoms. Indeed, the whole of the Bible can be said to be a, a great treatment of these two kingdoms. You remember that Adam and Eve are two sons. One was called Abel, one was called Cain. Well, they represent two kingdoms, if you like. One was a godly man, the other wasn't. There's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of this world, or if you like, the kingdom of Satan. And uh, there's always been a conflict between these two worlds. They're separated from one another, and they're absolutely different from one another. But now we are talking about the kingdom of God. Very well. That brings us to perhaps the most important thing for us to consider this evening, which is this. What are the characteristics of the kingdom of God? Now, we've got to deal with that for this reason. Here is our Lord actually looking into the face and into the eyes of a man like Nicodemus. A good man, a moral man, a teacher, a very able man, an intellectual man, one of the best types of men that you could ever meet. And it is to such a man that he says, If you are even to see this kingdom that I'm talking about, you must be born again. Why? What is it about this kingdom that necessitates this profound change? Well, that's my way of putting again this same question. What are the characteristics of this kingdom? And the answer is given abundantly everywhere in the Bible. Here are some of the characteristics. And obviously I'm going to put these things before you, not merely that we may look in an objective or theoretical or academic manner at this question, my dear friend, I'm doing all I'm doing for one reason only. I want you to know whether you belong to the kingdom of God or not. So here are its characteristics. 
It is the kingdom in which God rules. It is the kingdom in which God is sovereign. It is the kingdom in which he is the Lord. But not only that, it is a kingdom in which he is known. You know who is the head of this kingdom. It's the queen. And the queen is known to, the, to us, to the populace. That doesn't mean that we know her in a personal sense, but it means that we see her, we know about her, we are clear about her. And in the kingdom of God, God is known. God is known as the king. God is known as the head of the kingdom. God is not just some kind of abstraction, some sort of philosophic X, or some mere concept with which we can play in our arguments and discussions. No, no. In the kingdom of God, God is known as a person. He is real. Another characteristic of the kingdom is this. The citizens of this kingdom... They not only know God, they love God. And they, if I may so put it, glory in God and in his greatness and in his name. True allegiance to any king always involves that. You are anxious for the name of this king, the head of the kingdom, to be made glorious, to be made great. I needn't impress that upon you, we are all familiar with it. Well, transfer that to the kingdom of God. And you find that the citizens of the kingdom of God are proud of being citizens of such a kingdom and of such a king. They're anxious for his glory to be known. They're anxious for him to rule over all. They're anxious for his kingdom to be extended. Just work it out in terms of the natural. You know, men who are moved by this patriotic spirit, they're prepared even to shed their blood and to lose their lives for the sake of the glory of their kingdom, for the extension of that kingdom to which they belong. Well, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are like that, the kingdom of God. That is their controlling motive, that is their chiefest end, to glorify God and to make his name great and to see his kingdom extending throughout the whole world. That's another characteristic of this kingdom. Or perhaps for me to put it in another way, I can put it like this. The citizens of the kingdom of God love the law of God. They love God's ways. They love God's ideas and God's views of life. And having discovered what God's laws are, they say, well, now then, the way to honor and to glory God is to live the law, to keep it. And they want to do it. They can say with the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law. Or with the apostle Paul, I love the law of God after the inward men. They love the law of God. They realize and believe that it is the finest law that man has ever known, and they gladly give it a willing and a ready obedience. They say with the Apostle John, his commandments are not grievous. They are the very things that they want to keep and want to honor. And finally, I can put it like this. The great characteristic of the kingdom, according to the Apostle Paul, can be put in this way. 
in writing to those Romans, he said, he said, you know, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And of course it would be that of necessity, because it is God's kingdom, and God is righteous, and God is holy, and God is eternal in all his attributes. And therefore his citizens dwell in a realm which is like that, where God has sway, and where God rules, and governs, and his citizens keep his laws. Well, there is no warfare, or bloodshed, or jealousy, or envy, but righteousness, and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Or if you like, take that twelfth chapter of the epistle of Paul to the Romans, which we read at the beginning. There it's set out in very wonderful detail for us. That's the sort of people you have. They're people, you see, who when uh, somebody offends them, they don't hit back at him. They don't avenge themselves. They do good to them that hate them. If an enemy hunger, feed him. That's it. They try to live peaceably with all men. They laugh with those who rejoice and they mourn with those who mourn. They're not always living for themselves and always considering themselves. They haven't a high conceit of themselves. They're men of humble minds and they condescend to men of low estate. There it is. There are the characteristics of this kingdom of God. That's my first answer, therefore, to the question, uh, why is this great change necessary? Ah, but I've got a second answer, and this is my second proposition. Because that is the nature of this kingdom of God, obviously, we must be changed radically before we can ever see it or ever enter into it. Why? Well, here comes the answer. Because we are what we are by nature. See, that was the failure of Nicodemus. Not realizing the nature and the character of that kingdom, and not realizing the truth about himself. He thought that the way to enter into the kingdom, the way to become a Christian, was just to make a little slight adjustment somewhere in his life. Just to be a little bit better than he was before. Just to stop doing certain things perhaps and to begin doing other things. And there at once he would be a Christian. Now, isn't that the position with all of us by nature? Isn't that the kind of idea that we seem to have of what it means to be a Christian? That it's a very small step, perhaps a decision we take or something we do. No, no, says Christ, you must be born again. There is the character of my kingdom. That's the kind of person that's in it. It's a kingdom of God. Nicodemus, he says, you obviously haven't seen that. That's why I say to you at once, you must be born again. Why must we be born again? Well, here are some of the answers. We must be born again because the moment we realize the character of the kingdom of God, we realize that not only are we outside that kingdom, but that we are rebels in the sight of that king. We are guilty. If that is the kingdom of God, if men are meant thus to love God and to love his law and to give themselves to the keeping of that law, well, where are we? We haven't done that. We have rebelled against God. The first thing you do to an earthly king, king is to pay your act of allegiance, your homage 
You submit yourself to the authority and to the government. And if you don't, you're a rebel and you can be punished for it. It's exactly the same in this kingdom of God. Have we behaved towards God in the way that I've been indicating? Is God the king of your life? Is God in control of your being? Is it your supreme idea that God may be glorified? Do you delight in keeping God's law and in honoring his name? Are you giving yourself to that end? I say, if you haven't, you're deliberately breaking his laws. And God has made it perfectly plain and clear that to break his law means that we are guilty in his sight. Because the world in which we live is God's world. It is God who made it, and he made it for himself. And as its maker, and as its owner, and as its king, he has a right to say what should happen in it. And here are we, all of us, born into this world. We have all of us transgressed his laws. We are all of us guilty. We are not only outside the kingdom, but we have offended the king of the kingdom. And that is what the Bible means when it talks about sin, and when it talks about guilt, and when it says that man is a rebel against God. So that you see, before we can enter that kingdom, something has got to be done about this guilt of ours. I can't stand, start from where I am and say, Ah, oh, now then, I can see that I've got to be a better man. I can see that I've got to live a better life. Before I even begin to say that, what about the whole of my past? What about my attitude towards God? What about my treatment of God and his laws? What about the whole of my life as under the sight of God? What about my past? There is my guilt, my failure. I've got to start with that. I cannot enter into the kingdom of God as I am. A rebel has no right to walk into a kingdom and say, here I am, receive. No, no. He doesn't determine the law. He's got to submit to the law. And the law of God has promulgated its sentence quite plainly and quite clearly. Sin is to be punished. The almighty, eternal God, the king of this kingdom, has said that rebellion against him is the most terrible sin of all, and it will be punished by death. There's my first problem. But it isn't my only problem. Even if I am assured that my sin is forgiven, I've still got a problem, and the problem is my nature, my character, my sinful being and existence. And that is something which is absolutely opposed to everything that I have described to you as being true of the kingdom of God. Now, let us never forget, I say, that our Lord said this to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a good man. And yet our Lord says these things to this good man. What does he say to him? Well, he says this. He didn't say to Nicodemus that he was as bad as a man could possibly be. He didn't give a list of sins which he'd committed. No, no, this man had not committed certain gross sins, but he was at the same time a man who had a sinful nature. And we all have a sinful nature, and I can prove that very simply. Do we live to God? Don't we all of us live to ourselves? 
Isn't the controlling principle in the life of every one of us by nature self, self-interest, self-concern, self-satisfaction? Isn't it true to say of all of us that we forget God and his glory and that we live for ourselves and our own glory? Am I being unfair? Well, my dear friend, I have nothing to say to you but just to ask you to examine yourself. Would you like to say that you have lived always to the glory of God? Do you say to yourself every day as you get up and start out into life, Now I belong to God and his kingdom, and the chiefest thing in my life today is going to be God's honor and God's glory. Come what may, I may suffer what you like, I don't care. God is going to be first, always first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is that your normal practice? And if it isn't, it's because you've got a nature which is self-centered. And you yourself and your own interests come before God and his interests and his kingdom. Not only that, you see, instead of realizing our need of God, we trust ourselves. We trust our own abilities. Read again the twelfth chapter of the epistle to the Romans and examine yourself in the light of it. And don't we all have to admit that by nature we are almost the exact opposite? And then our desires, our likes and our dislikes, are they consistent with the character of this kingdom of God? Look at it, I say, at any level of life or of society, and the thing is perfectly plain and clear. Can we imagine the Lord Jesus Christ participating in and taking part in the things that even the average person does with enjoyment? That's the test. You see, our very natures are opposed to the character of that kingdom. So that I don't hesitate to put it like this, that if you took natural man as he is and put him immediately in heaven, it would be hell to him. There'd be no drinking there. There'd be no dancing there. There'd be no gambling there. There'd be none of this gloating over sex. It isn't there. There's nothing impure there. There's nothing unclean there. They spend their time there praising God and enjoying him and extolling his virtues. Would you like to spend eternity in, in a kind of prayer meeting? Would you like to spend your eternity like that? How can a man who lives for this world and its things, how can he possibly be happy there? His nature is utterly opposed to it. The things he likes, the things he wants, the things he desires are the very antithesis of that. And I say that even a highly moral good man like this Nicodemus, that that's true of him. He was self-centered. He lived for himself. He was concerned about himself. Though he was supposed to be a teacher of God's ways, our Lord knows what is in men, we are told. And he knows the heart of this Pharisee, that primarily he's concerned about himself and his own righteousness, more concerned about that than he is about God. And he's self-confident, and he feels he can do it. Tell me, he's on the point of saying to Christ, 
Christ. What is it you've got that I haven't got? I just want to step up to where you are. He believed he could do it. He'd never realized that his nature was polluted. That it was a sinful nature. Or indeed I might put it to you like this. Our whole thinking is different. That's why the Apostle Paul puts it like that. You see in those two first two verses of the 12th chapter of his epistle to the Romans. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a very simple way of putting this again. You know to the natural men, the man as he is by nature, as we're all born into this world, the Bible seems to be talking about something which he just doesn't understand at all. Give him a novel and he'll read it and enjoy it. Give a certain men a book on science and they'll be perfectly happy. Give another poetry. Give another a book about art. Give another some music. Ah, they feel they're like fish in water. The thing appeals to them and they want another book and another. And they'll spend the whole of their time reading. Suddenly give them the Bible. And they say, what's this talking about? What is this? It seems away in the clouds. It's remote. What's this really got to say? I don't understand this. What's all this about being born again and so on? They don't understand it. They don't see its relevance. They don't see its importance. And they feel that it really has got nothing to do with them. Why? Ah, you see, the whole bent of their mind is against it. Now that is man by nature. And look at this great man Nicodemus, this great Pharisee. Look how he stumbles like a child. Look at the foolish things he says, the silly questions he asks. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Was there ever such a display of ignorance? My dear friend, said our Lord to this man, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And you are thinking with a mind of flesh. And you're thinking in terms of mechanics and material things. Can't you see I'm talking about spiritual things? I'm in another realm. You want a new mind, Nicodemus? You can't understand. Of course you can't. That's why I say you must be born again. Does this business of Christianity come naturally to you, my friend? Do you find it easy to follow? Do you take to this as a fish to water? Is this in conformity with the way in which you've always thought? Come, let's be frank and honest. It's absolutely different. We're in another realm altogether, in the realm of things spiritual and unseen, and its whole vocabulary is different, and the processes of thought seem to be different. It's altogether different. That is why, you see, such a great change is necessary. Before anybody can see or enter into this kingdom of God, Oh, no, you don't become a Christian just by deciding to become one as you are. No, no. You can take up religion like that. You can join the church perchance like that. But you can't become a Christian like that. Before you become a Christian, you're absolutely new. You're changed altogether. Otherwise, you cannot possibly be a citizen of that kingdom. 
Very well, says someone, what is the change that is necessary? I simply give you my headings this evening. Our Lord has put it once and forever in the fifth verse. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What's this mean? Well, it means this. What's this being born of water? That's his way of dealing with that first problem, the problem of our sin and the guilt of our sin. Do you know, my friend, before any of us can enter into that kingdom, we've got to be reconciled with the king? We are here bespattered and besmirched by the guilt of sin. It's upon us all heavily. I've got to be washed before I can go in there. I need to be cleansed. I need to be pardoned. I need to be forgiven. How can that happen to me? Thank God the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came all the way from heaven to earth in order to answer that very question. You now begin to see, don't you, why all that had to happen? Why the Son of God ever left the courts of heaven and came on earth? Why he was born of a virgin? Why he taught? Why he died? Why? Well, because of this problem. What do I do about it, says someone? Oh, I'll tell you, it's quite simple. It's what's called in the Bible repentance. You see, what that means is this, that I at last come to see my position in the sight of God, that I am a rebel, that I have sinned against him, that there's nothing in me at all to recommend myself to him. I go to God and I say that, I confess it, I tell him that, I feel it. Nicodemus had never known what it was to feel that he was a sinner. He was the teacher. But he's got to see that he's a sinner. He's got to see that however much better he may be than the ordinary people, when he comes face to face with God, he's a sinner. He's not kept God's law. He's not honored God. He's sinned against him. He's guilty before God. He's got to get down and confess it. He must be baptized with water. John's baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He needs it as everybody else needs it. He's got to realize it. He's got to confess it. He's got to acknowledge it before God. He's got to realize his need to be delivered from it. He's got to renounce it. That's what's meant by repentance. And no one can enter into the kingdom of God unless he repents. It's the gateway that every man must pass through. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what our Lord said. That's what he sent out the others to say. Repentance, acknowledgement of our condition and our state before God, realization that we are utterly dependent upon him, that his law is there and has spoken and that we can do nothing about it. And then complete submission to what he tells us about it. When a man realizes he's sinned against God, 
He goes to God and he acknowledges and confesses. And he cries out, have mercy upon me. And then God tells him, yes, I will have mercy upon you. I have made a way whereby it is possible for me to forgive you your sin and all its guilt. And then he points this man by the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Nicodemus is attracted by him. He's a marvelous man. He says, look at the miracles. Yes, yes, but he'd never realized this. The Son of God has come into the world not to work miracles. He came into the world to die, to die on a cross, to have his body broken and his blood shed. Why? Because that's the only way whereby Nicodemus' sins and the sins of everybody else can be atoned for. Do you know why the Son of God came into this world? It was to bear the punishment of our sins. Except a man be born of water, repentance, submission to God, and a glad acceptance of God's way of salvation, not fully understanding it perhaps at the beginning, going on to understanding, but realizing this, that I deserve nothing from God, that I've got no claim on the love of God. I've forgotten him, I've insulted him, I've defied him, I've flouted his laws. I've spurned his voice divine. I've lived for myself, my own likes and desires. What can recommend me? I'm absolutely at the mercy of God. But God has sent his own son. It's coming later in this chapter. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Who is the whosoever who believeth in him? He's the man who realizes that he's lost without him. No man rushes to Christ unless he knows he's a sinner. Why should he go to Christ? Oh, he can admire him. He can praise him. He says he's a marvelous person. He's a wonderful teacher. Look at his miracles. But that's not flying to him as a helpless, hopeless sinner. No, no, the man who goes to Christ and believes on him is the man who realizes that he perishes without him. Because... He has offended this holy God and has broken his holy laws. Except a man be born of water, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And in addition, of course, he must be born of the Spirit also. I'm not staying with this tonight. It means this. It's absolutely essential. Before you and I or anybody born into this world can enjoy God and live for him and enjoy heaven in his eternal presence, we must have a new nature. We need a nature that will hate the darkness and love the light instead of hating the light and loving the darkness. Before anybody can enjoy eternity in such holiness, in the presence of such purity, in the sight of such majesty. They must have a nature that corresponds, a nature like God's own nature. That's what mean, what is meant by being born of the Spirit. Born again, born from above, becoming a partaker of the divine nature. That's what happens to a man who becomes a Christian. You can't enter the kingdom without it. God won't admit you. His only citizens are those who have the new nature, who have been born 
of the Spirit. Well, my friend, there it is. I leave you with a question. Are you in the kingdom of God? Have you realized your guilt, your sin? Have you realized that it's so terrible that if Christ hadn't come into this world and died for you, there'd be no hope for you at all? That's what every man who, re that's what every man who belongs to the kingdom of God does realize. Have you been born again? Have you been born of water? Have you been born of the Spirit? Is your outlook new? Has your mind been transformed? Is it still conformable to the world or has it been transformed and is now conformable to the kingdom of God? You know, it's one or the other. Which is your chief interest? What you get in the newspapers, what you get from people who live for this world and all that it has, or is it these things? Is it God? Is it Christ? Is it Christian people? Is it the history of the church? Is it the word of God? It's one or the other. Have you the new nature with these new desires? Oh, how I thank God that I can say this to you at this moment. If you feel as you're listening to me that you've never known your sin, that you've never repented, that you haven't got a new nature, if you realize it, and if you now feel desperate about it, and if you want to be like this, you can repent here and now. Go to God and acknowledge it and confess it all. Ask him to have mercy upon you. Ask him to work this great operation upon you. Ask him to give you this birth of the Spirit. And as certainly as you ask him, I promise you, he will receive you. And he will do it. Him that cometh unto me, said Christ, I will in no wise cast out. Don't waste a second in trying to make yourself fit for the kingdom of God. By definition, you'll never do it. Your whole nature must be changed, and you can't do it. You can't get rid of your guilt. You can't change your nature. God can, by the Holy Spirit, ask him to do it, and he will do it. Make no tarrying. Amen.